Uh, well, thank you very much for coming to the second Las Vegas Federalist Society event. Uh, the first event that we had last month was uh, very well attended, and there was uh, several articles in the, in the newspapers about the debate on uh, judicial fundraising and issues of judicial speech. Um, my name is Matt Saltzman uh, from Polestar and Latham Law Firm, and I'm the chapter president here in Las Vegas, and um, I'm very happy to be able to present the second of our three-part series on uh, judicial issues in Nevada. And today's uh, topic is uh, very relevant and timely on uh, appointment versus election of judges. And uh, we all know that there's a lot of discussion in Carson City right now on this issue, so um, we are at the right place at the right time. Uh, we're honored to have as a moderator of today's discussion uh, Judge Jay Bailey from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and uh, to be joined by two very uh, prominent uh, law professors who will be able to speak uh, on various uh, sides of these issues. Um, they've traveled quite a distance to be here, and I think for some of them it may be their first visit to Las Vegas. So uh, in the spirit of the Masters, we're happy to present this view for you, and um, hopefully we'll have a nice lunch and discussion. Uh, Judge Bidey's background, many of you are familiar with. He graduated from Brigham Young University, and um, where he also earned his law degree. Uh, he uh, clerked for Judge Donald Russell of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit, practiced for a few years at Sidley and Austin, and then joined the Department of Justice, working in the Office of Legal Policy and then the appellate staff of the Civil Division. Uh, he served at the White House from 1989 to 1991 as Associate General Counsel to the President. In uh, 1991, he joined the Louisiana State University Law School, and then uh, we're very happy that he was one of the founding faculty members at UNLV's Boyd School of Law. Uh, his scholarship has been published in prominent law journals such as the Yale Law Journal and Stanford Law Review. And uh, in 2001, he uh, was appointed by President Bush to be Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Legal Counsel at the U.S. Department of Justice, a position he held until 2003, and as you know, presently on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, Dr. Bobby, thank you very much for moderating our debate today. Is that on? Can you hear me now? Uh, thank you very much, Matt, and thank you to the Federalist Society for uh, sponsoring this uh, for the, sponsoring this symposium. I think that this is a uh, a very important topic for uh, Nevada, and I. Uh, uh, thank the Federalist Society publicly for uh, being willing to sponsor this event and uh, congratulate all of you for uh, coming and attending today. At present, Article 6 of the Nevada Constitution provides that Nevadans, uh, that Nevadans who will elect their judges in nonpartisan elections that may or may not be contested elections. As a consequence of such elections, judges must solicit campaign contributions. Interest groups, including counsel who will appear before those judges, are frequently the donors to such campaigns. These campaign practices may give the appearance of impropriety. Whether there has been actual impropriety has been the subject of much public discussion and a controversial series of articles entitled Juice versus Justice in the Los Angeles Times last year, reprinted in its entirety in the Las Vegas uh, Review Journal. What are the merits of the Times article? There are at least two important developments, suggesting that Nevada may be ready to make some changes in the process of judicial selection. First, former Chief Justice Bob Rose has appointed a blue-ribbon 28-member commission 
known as the Article VI Commission, to conduct a study of Nevada's judicial system. That commission is charged with conducting a study and making recommendations for reform. Second, in February, a bipartisan group of state senators led by Senator Bill Raggio has introduced a state constitutional amendment, Senate Joint Resolution 2, which proposes adopting a Missouri-style plan of judicial selection. Under their proposal, a nominating commission consisting of the Chief Justice or his designee, four members of the state bar, and four non-attorneys would propose three judicial nominees for each open seat. The governor may nominate a one of the names on the list, or toss the array and ask for a second set of nominees. The governor must appoint one of the names on the second list, or the governor loses the opportunity to make that appointment. Once appointed to the position, the judge must stand in a non-contested retention election where he or she must obtain the approval uh, of at least 60% of those voting to retain judicial office. We are pleased to welcome two scholars from outside Nevada who have thought and written broadly about the issues of judicial selection. From Northwestern University School of Law, we welcome Professor Stephen Presser, and from Widener University School of Law in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, we welcome Professor uh, Michael Domino. Professor Presser is the Ralph Berger Professor of Legal History at Northwestern, graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School. Professor Presser clerked for Judge Malcolm Wilkie of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, was an attorney at Wilmer, Wilmer Cutler and Pickering in Washington, D.C., and has taught at Rutgers and the University of Virginia in addition to Northwestern. He is the author of numerous books and articles and scholarly interests are principally in the area of American legal history and constitutional law. Professor Domino is currently Assistant Professor of Law at Widener. He is a graduate of State University of New York at Buffalo and Harvard Law School. He clerked for Associate Judge Albert Rosenblatt of the New York Court of Appeals, for Senior Judge Larry Silverman of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, and for Judge Paul Friedman of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. He, is, he also is the author of a number of articles on judicial selection and constitutional law. Gentlemen, it's a pleasure to have both of you and welcome you to Las Vegas. I'm going to give each of, our, um, each of our panelists about 15 to 20 minutes to stake out a position. With the time remaining, I'm going to ask some follow-up questions, and I'm going to give uh, you the opportunity to ask questions. We have a microphone back there near the center table, and uh, so we will give you an opportunity to uh, ask questions of our panelists. And with that, we will start with Professor Presser. Thank you, Judge Mighty. It's a, a distinct honor to be here. Um, this is my first uh, visit to Las Vegas, and uh, I've been staying at the Strip, and I'm still uh, suffering from profound culture shock. Uh, so forgive me if I'm a little uh, unclear. Um, it's my job not only to stake out a position, but maybe give you just a little bit more uh, background on this issue, and I'll talk, uh, I hope, for no more than 20 minutes. Stop me if I go on uh, too long. Um, Michael will be speaking about the case for election of judges, but I think a couple of words uh, with regard to that are appropriate uh, before I make the case for appointment. Um, these days, it's political scientists who are mostly uh, arguing for the election of judges, but the trend toward election of judges began in the Jacksonian era uh, in 1832. Until then, uh, almost all judicial appointments followed the model of the federal constitution with nomination by the governor 
and then approval uh, usually by the state legislature. Uh, the theory in favor of election of judges is that judges are policymakers these days, like legislators, and if they're going to be making policy decisions, they ought to be responsive to the people. Uh, if judges are to be independent, so the theory runs, they can be independent of the other branches, but they shouldn't be independent of the public, who after all pays their salaries uh, and relies on them. Well, of course, that's all wrong. Um, the best things that were said about appointment of judges, among them, uh, is what Alexander Hamilton said in Federalist 78. If the power of making periodical judicial appointments was committed to the people, or to persons chosen by them for the special purpose, there would be too great a disposition to consult popularity in order to justify a reliance that nothing would be consulted but the Constitution and the laws. And that point is the one that really bears emphasis. We want our judges to follow the Constitution and the laws and not popular sentiment. More than that, and perhaps I'm still romantic to be able to believe this in this day and age, but judges really should have relatively little discretion and they should follow established legal rules to protect people from the tyranny of arbitrary power from wherever it emanates, even from the popular will. Two of the most uh, astute European scholars of American government, the Frenchman uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, possibly the only good Frenchman who ever lived, and a, a still wonderful observer uh, of the American scene, and the Englishman James Bryce, cautioned that an elect elected judiciary would bring dire results to America. The most famous such statement is Tocqueville's. Under some state constitutions, the judges are elected and subject to frequent re-election. I venture to predict that sooner or later, these innovations will have dire results and that one day it will be seen that by diminishing the magistrate's independence, not judicial power only, but the democratic republic itself has been attacked. In other words, Tocqueville believed, as did many Americans, uh, at least in the beginning of the 19th century, that ours was supposed to be a government of laws and not men. And the theory was, if you were going to elect judges, uh, you wouldn't have that, strictly speaking, government of laws anymore. Judges can't be independent, as Judge Bybee remarked, when they have to worry about re-election. Uh, instead, I think, it's preferable to hold accountable those political branches responsible for appointment, and if necessary, to remove judges who fail to do their jobs through the impeachment process. Uh, as I understand it, the impeachment process here in Nevada is very complicated, but uh, SJR 2 proposes, among other things, uh, I think what we could describe as a commission system uh, to investigate judges and investigate complaints made against them, and I think that could serve very, very well uh, for the needed purpose of keeping the judges in line. In the states which use the appointment means of judicial selection, and there still are some, those bodies charged with selection responsibilities governors, legislatures, nominating commissions, or some combination of all three, enjoy an informational advantage over the public. The public doesn't know what judges to vote for. It hasn't got the time, hasn't got the inclination, and probably doesn't have the understanding of what makes a good judge uh, and what doesn't. So, with little information about judges on the ballot, voters in partisan elections, and really even often in nonpartisan elections, if they can figure out what party the judge belongs to, voters have no choice but to rely on party cues. This happens, of course, in Illinois uh, with some frequency where I come from. Thus, linking selection to national or local partisan issues rather than the qualifications for actual job performance. And uh, again, as uh, Judge Bybee alluded to, 
there is a certain unappealing crassness about the election of judges that threatens the reverence for and the legitimacy itself of the bench. In states with elected judiciaries, judges have to hustle votes, and they must raise money for campaigns. And in order to do both, inevitably, they're going to rely on the people most interested in the election of judges, and they're going to be the lawyers and the parties who appear before them. So there's a built-in conflict of interest in the system. There's no doubt that this is a profound problem in Nevada, where 90% of the contributions to judicial campaigns apparently come from lawyers and casino interests who regularly appear before judges. Indeed, another extraordinary thing in this state is that most, uh, or many probably if not most, of the judges here run unopposed, and they still get campaign contributions. Uh, and they don't necessarily um, do good things with the money uh, that they collect. Um, even worse uh, is what we might call the capture problem. The partisan election process is not only demeaning to judges and cast out over their partiality, but the empirical evidence shows that the selection process often becomes captive in, in many states. I'm not sure it happens here as often. To the plaintiff's lawyers in the trial bar, plaintiff's lawyers generally are disproportionately high financial contributors to election campaigns, and the defense bar often is at a disadvantage uh, in those kind of contests. Nonpartisan elections, which you have here, of course, are not really much better. Since voter choice has become even more arbitrary, elections become even more of an insider's game, and the risk of capture by self-interested segments of the bar is just as great. Governors and legislatures, by contrast, are generally more responsive, more informed, and duly elected representatives of the electorate who have superior access to information concerning potential jurors. An appointments model is more likely to reduce the role that irrelevant criteria, self-interest, and pure chance will play in the selection of judges. There have been a number of studies, and I don't have access to all of them, but the empirical evidence increasingly demonstrates that where there are partisan or even nonpartisan elections, judges either feel pressure to conform to popular opinion or to favor the interests of those who contribute to their judicial campaigns. And as trial lawyers have become increasingly important contributors to such campaigns in some states, as I say, I'm not sure uh, that's the precise problem here, the cause of civil justice reform that we've been very interested in for the last few years has suffered, as elected judges have, for the most part, been more likely to frustrate the reform efforts of legislatures. In addition, in states with partisan judicial elections, it's more likely that higher judgments will be recovered by plaintiffs bringing suit against out-of-state corporations. And there have been a lot of judges who said that they feel pressure to do that uh, when they're going to be up for election. Um, further, and uh, this part of your plan, of course, is the adoption that's uh, proposed in SGR 2 is the merit selection plan. And I have to confess, I don't like that much either. Merit selection, or the Missouri plan, as it is also known, is now the most prevalent method of judicial selection for appellate courts and is only slightly less favored for selecting trial court judges. It's currently employed by at least 33 states and the District of Columbia. The Missouri plan grew out of the progressive reform movement shortly after the beginning of the 20th century, and in particular, I'm sorry to say, can be attributed to the influence of Roscoe Pound, uh, then the dean of Nebraska, after that the dean of Harvard, and formerly a faculty member 
at uh, Northwestern University. The second contributor to the plan was John H. Wigmore, then dean of Northwestern University School of Law. And the third was Albert Hales, a colleague of Wigmore's at Northwestern. So I'm here to apologize for my colleagues' efforts. Uh, in 1940 in Missouri, pursuant to the initial um, establishment of the Missouri plan, a commission was selected and composed, just like the plan that's being proposed uh, for yours, composed of lawyers selected by the bar, laypersons selected by the governor, and a sitting judge who served as chair. The commission nominated three candidates, just like your proposed plan, for each judicial vacancy, and the governor then appointed judges from that list, after which the judge had to stand again, like your plan, for a retention election at the next general election. The plan remains in effect in Missouri, and as I say, in, all of these other, in many of these other states. But as one commentator described it, after a period on the bench, judges face voters on the question of whether they should be retained in office. Judges who receive the required number of affirmative votes in this uncontested plebiscite earn a full term in office. At the end of each succeeding term, judges again face voters on a retention ballot. Yours would have that happen uh, every six years. If the judge is rejected, the process of appointment is reinstituted. Re now, the theory of the Missouri plan is that it's a political, a practical political compromise between the goals of judicial independence and public accountability. The combined system of judicial merit selection and subsequent retention elections is designed to obtain quality judges, maintain their independence by insulating them from political influences, and provide public accountability through a mechanism for removal of judges. Well, the problem is, it doesn't work. Now, there's a great risk of the frustration of civil justice reform efforts, even by judges picked with the so-called merit systems, where a nominating commission forwards names for appointment to the governor. Because the organized bar, which may be captured by elements hostile to civil justice reform and which will play the preeminent role in these commissions often controls who's going to be given the nod. It can be argued that merit plans have a built-in bias toward whatever group of lawyers control local bar associations. Other students of merit selection have observed that the practice under merit plans has simply not supported the theory. To have any hope of achieving its asserted goals, such a plan must be based on provisions which ensure a truly independent, impartial, and diverse nominating commission with the power and resources to investigate thoroughly those who come before it as candidates. But in general, plans currently in use, yours may be a little better in this regard, have not included such provisions. The result has been that while partisan political consideration, like who's a Democrat and who's a Republican, may to a certain extent have been removed from the selection process, politics, bar politics, still remains an important factor. The form for such political considerations has merely been shifted from the electoral arena to the commissions and the governor's mansion, and even worse than that, since the judges have to stand for retention, all the issues of campaign contributions that uh, happen in your nonpartisan system will happen with retention elections. Merit selection is favored by elements who wish to influence public policy outside of the election political process because it provides an opportunity to reduce the dominant party's influence in judicial selection. Lawyers generally prefer merit selection because it gives them a bigger voice than other selection techniques. But inasmuch as lawyers as a group already exert significant influence over public policy, it's certainly debatable whether this is a reason to favor merit selection, which vastly reduces public participation in judicial selection. 
the Missouri plan's combination of committee-level politics and limited voter participation in retention elections. Very few voters vote in retention elections, and what's worse than that, maybe, is that 90% of the candidates in election uh, in retention elections win, and again, they're going to be pocketing campaign contributions that they don't really even need. So this has the effect of obscuring the judicial selection process from public scrutiny and debate. And this is probably the most significant effect the Missouri plan has on our political and legal system, and it's hard to see how this obscuring of issues really helps the legal system. Some 20 states now have retention elections with terms varying from four to 20 years, with six years, that's the one you're going to use, as the most common judicial term. Uh, I'm sorry, I understated it. The precise influence of retention elections is elusive because almost 99% of judges are returned to office in retention elections. One explanation for the low voter interest in retention elections where they're uncontested and nonpartisan is that there's little public awareness of the issues involved or indeed the prior behavior for the candidates for retention. Without a party label to go on, without any substantial information on the candidates, the public has little on which to base a retention decision vote, and the outcome seems to be almost always to leave things exactly as they are. So, my conclusion then is, if you want the rule of law, if you want less discretion, and you want more independence on the party of judges, the appointments method is better. Appointment by the chief executive, exercising his or her own discretion with confirmation by the legislature, not as contemplated, by the way, by your constitutional amendment, retention elections by the people. It's better to have a legislative check, I think. The Friends of the Rule of Law and Civil Justice, and I assume uh, civil justice reform, I assume most of you are that, ought to conclude that the best course is not to support elections, or even the merit system, but to argue for a return to the federal model for the states. We went wrong in 1832. It's time to fix that. Now, some states which still follow the old model, the federal government's model, and don't forget, we still appoint federal judges. We don't uh, elect them, and uh, I think Judge Bybee is living proof that the system works. Nevada has recently made some other very, very interesting legal moves uh, to make its law very interesting and attractive to the rest of the nation. As you know, your corporation law now borrows from Delaware, and I think uh, is the same in its text word for word, and Delaware precedents uh, are binding. This state is becoming a haven for incorporation from other, uh, from corporations uh, headquartered in other places. This is terrific, I think, uh, for this state. It's terrific uh, for the incorporators, too, because uh, the system that you're putting together uh, uses the Delaware legal system on corporations, which is the most advanced that there is. Uh, you've also, as you probably know, uh, passed some recent legislation um, saying that piercing the corporate veil, which is an area uh, that I work in, is to be an issue for judges and not juries, and I think that's enormously progressive and a very good reason to incorporate in Nevada. I think moving towards a true appointment system would help regularize and give incorporators from other states a little bit more confidence uh, about the Nevada legal system. Uh, I think even if you adopt this new plan, uh, that'll be a little bit more difficult to achieve. Okay, that's the case for appointment. Thank you very much.
Good afternoon to all of you. This is not my first trip to Las Vegas. I'm very happy to be here, and I thank Tuan and Matt for their efforts in organizing the conference. To the Federalist Society for sponsoring it, Federalist Society has been very good to me, and I'm very proud to be uh, affiliated with it uh, by speaking to you today here. And thank you also to to all of you uh, for, for showing up and listening to this important discussion. My first trip to Las Vegas was was when I was about 12 years old or so. I came with my family, and this was the time of, of my life when I was really interested in, in sports trading cards. And I, I came to Las Vegas, and I was delighted to find that the people were just giving away trading cards right on the street. It was... It was uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've been rather enchanted with the city ever since. <laughs> uh, surprisingly enough, uh, Professor Presser and I agree on a great deal, so you may not get uh, uh, terribly much disagreement between the two of us, uh, particularly as regards the defects of the Missouri plan. Uh, and I think I can, uh, I think I'll agree with with Professor Presser on this that the that calling it the Merit Selection Plan is a terrible misnomer, uh, both because it doesn't do any better in choosing judges who have greater qualifications than does any other system, and because qualifications aren't really merit anyway, and it's very hard to figure out what merit does mean in any given circumstance. Instead, it's a, it's a, a tool used by supporters of the plan to gain support through, through naming it. But in any event, I, I think he's entirely correct that that, that proposal, and to the extent that, that SJR2 adopts it, uh, that that one as well has significant problems. But I will speak to you, I, I have three main topics that I want you to take away from my remarks here today. One, be suspicious anytime a lawyer instructs you that a change in the law is the way to go. Uh, the voters certainly will be. Uh, two, all plans have advantages and disadvantages, including the Missouri plan. And three, when you balance the flaws of all the plans, it may well be that the proper result uh, is something that no state has. That is, a state where the top court in the judicial system is elected and the lower courts are appointed on a federal level. We'll get to all those uh, in order. First, one of the most fundamental skills taught to lawyers and to politicians is how to advance a substantive value choice while masking it with appeals to supposedly neutral principles, or at least such principles that are more generally accepted than are the values that are truly sought. Thus, procedural constraints on litigation from statutes of limitations to discovery limits to requirements of pleading with particularity are ostensibly supported not because of their predictable effect on litigation, but because of the neutral-sounding justification of efficiency or the like. Similarly, Republicans attack fundraising by 527 groups in neutral language, but because 527s are an effective tool for Democrats, that leads to their attack. Democrats return the favor by attacking fundraising techniques that are effective for Republicans. Both make neutral-sounding appeals about the potential for voter confusion in defeating efforts to include third-party candidates in the ballot and in debates. And incumbents of all political parties claim that corruption 
or the appearance of corruption is the reason it is absolutely necessary to adopt campaign finance measures that ensure that challengers will have as difficult a time as possible in making themselves known to potential voters. The task of the analyst or the law student is to evaluate these offered justifications to see which represent weighty rationales supporting or attacking a position and which are consciously or unconsciously just rationalizations. I want to make clear at the outset that I am not questioning the motives of anyone here or any individual, any particular individual who has taken any position on which mode of judicial selection is best. But, on the other hand, all systems that set the rules for political competition have some effect on the results of that competition, and we're kidding ourselves if we think that support for any system is unrelated to predictions about which effects are likely to occur. Some time ago, I gave a talk on a similar topic to an association of trial lawyers in a state that was considering changing from an elective system of judicial selection to something else. After I spoke, the association was kind enough to let me sit in on their deliberations. I found it humorous and instructive that the reasoning oscillated between a neutral-sounding concern over protecting voting rights or the quality of the selected judges and a self-interested concern about the representation that group would expect to have on the nominating commission, the sway they would have with the governor, and the prospects of electoral victory of candidates sympathetic to their cause. Many were forthright about, with me about the degree to which the elective system became more of a concern as the voters in that state grew more and more likely to support Republicans. All this suggests that we are, if we are to be appropriately suspicious of attempts to change any political system, we should look to the interests and the ideologies of the groups supporting such change. When considering a move to discard an elective system, we should ask which interests are particularly likely to lose an election. While the answer to that question varies somewhat across locations and across time, one answer seems near universally true. Judicial candidates appeal to voters by arguing that they are tougher on crime than are their opponents. Accordingly, the harshest critics of judicial elections typically are after the very interests that press for the rights of the accused and the convicted. Before 2002, when states could and did restrict judicial candidates' speech to the blandest of platitudes, the capacity of judicial elections to influence policy was somewhat restricted. Every candidate could claim to be tough on crime, no candidate could effectively challenge the other's claims, and the voters were left to guess at which candidate would best represent their views. Once the United States Supreme Court decided Republican Party versus White, however, candidates, states, and interest groups realized that judicial elections presented an opportunity for voters to affect judicial policy like never before. I strongly suspect, therefore, that it was no coincidence that the justices' votes in White itself were correlated not with their typical receptivity to First Amendment claims, which is what was involved in White, but rather on those justices' votes in criminal cases. How does this affect Missouri Plan-style elections? Well, adopting a Missouri Plan shifts power to lawyers, and the lay voters may rightly be suspicious. Under what I understand are the provisions of SPR 2, a minority, that is two of five, of the commission will be made of non-lawyers. Perhaps such a move is justified by lawyers' expertise over matters of judicial quality, 
But maybe voters will see it as a way of entrenching the political power of a profession that has views on public policy different from those of the public at large. Moving from an elective system to any other system inescapably shifts political power. This shift may be either good or bad, but voters are typically suspicious of an attempt to shift power away from them. Of course, voters themselves sometimes do not hold a terribly large amount of power, even in states that use popular elections to choose judges. <coughs> Excuse me. Instead, party bosses may wield more power by controlling which candidates appear on the ballot. Even in that example, however, voters are presented with the choice between two candidates favored by opposing party bosses and can choose which one is the less of a hack. Such choice, as good as it is, is not available under, under a different system. But we should not pretend that other systems will do a better job than elections do of placing power in the hands of the people. It is worth remembering that judicial elections were instituted largely to make judges dependent on the people rather than on elites who hold positions in state government. Elections are not perfect. They don't precisely represent the will of the people, and even if they did, many, if not most, of the people lack the information and inclination to make a reasoned choice between candidates. But all systems have flaws, and SJR2 is no exception. Professor Presser has pointed out some of the flaws. I'll list them briefly here, and if you're interested, we can address them more in, in terms of questions. Judicial elections have been attacked on the grounds that the role of ideology is increased during the judicial election campaigns. While ideology is certainly relevant during judicial campaigns, and this may in fact be a good thing, it is certainly relevant as well in appointment processes as the recent experience in the federal appointment process attests. Similarly, interest group involvement has been attacked, saying that elections in a encourage interest groups to take positions and to influence politics both in the nomination and ultimate selection of candidates. Surely that is not very different from an appointive system, including the federal system. Interest groups have a great uh, interest in seeing uh, judges appointed whose views they agree with, and they spend a great deal of money trying to influence the nomination and confirmation process. Qualifications. Studies seem to indicate the qualifications of judges selected under the Missouri plan are no different from the qualifications of judges selected under other plans. It's also been, been alleged that the Missouri plan increases the independence of the courts selected under that plan. That depends on what you mean by independence. More judges are retained under the Missouri plan than under pure elective systems. Some judges, however, are not retained. The fear of not being retained causes judges who are subject to retention elections to raise money and can cause them to decide cases looking over their shoulder at a potential, uh, a potential retention election that is upcoming. And because retention elections are often done without opponents, indeed that's generally the purpose, it makes it very difficult for the judge to campaign uh, against a non-entity. One is never quite sure whether uh, 
what grounds the people are going to oppose the judge's retention on, and sometimes states restrict the judicial candidate's speech in a uncontested retention election uh, on grounds of judicial impropriety or on grounds of saving money from campaigns. And if the judge is not able to attack because there is no identified opponent, judicial retention elections can become the most unfair of all retention elections. It's still worth pointing out that if you mean for independence to mean the ability to strike down legislation, Frank Cross, a scholar at the University of Texas, has demonstrated that Missouri plan judges are least likely, the only type of elective system for which this was shown to a statistically significant extent, least likely to strike down legislation. If you want independence in your judiciary, it seems perhaps paradoxical to go with the Missouri plan. More importantly, perhaps, than all this, are that the limits placed on judicial election, judicial selection in terms of the danger that judges will decide cases based on the expected impact on voters rather than on the law are caused by the system in place for re-election and not the system of initial selection. It seems to me that more appropriate ways of addressing this admittedly substantial concern include lengthening terms, perhaps as far as to include good behavior, or prohibiting judges from serving more than one term, at least consecutive. And as I'll suggest in a couple of minutes, those reforms might be especially effective if targeted at the class of judge for whom those threats to independence are most acute. If you're worried about campaign financing and the amount of money that's spent on judicial campaigns, perhaps you should consider other alternatives. Campaign contributions are certainly constitutional, and even if the Supreme Court retreats from its approach to uh, campaign finance law in legislative elections, there's a more weighty interest in reducing campaign contributions to judges because of what was pointed out earlier. Another clearly constitutional approach would be to institute a system of public financing, as North Carolina has. Under such a system, candidates would agree to forego the receipt of campaign contributions or contributions over a certain amount in exchange for receiving a sum of money from the state that the candidate can use to campaign. As I pointed out earlier, money's influence in judicial campaigns is not strictly limited to electoral systems. Money by interest groups is, is used throughout appointive systems as well. In fact, as of 2003, the most expensive judicial race in history was the 1986 California retention election. To be sure, that was an exception to the general rule. Many retention elections are not seriously uh, contested or uh, controversial. Nevertheless, retention elections raise the possibility, just as other systems of selection do, of the influence of money. Once again, I'm not arguing that judicial elections are perfect, just that neither are the alternatives. 
Elections do, however, have one important advantage over the other systems. No other system involves the public as directly in their own self-government. This is not to say that the appointive systems are illegitimate. Of course, they're not. The people need not be directly involved in the selection of every public official that governs their life. Nevertheless, there is a cost in terms of democracy the less the people act as their own ruler. It is undeniable that courts, especially state supreme courts, make public policy in part on the basis of their own ideas about what these policies should be. In this respect, Professor Presser's dichotomy between judges who follow the law and judges follow, who follow public opinion is, uh, is, is somewhat misleading. Instead, the choices between judges who follow the law tempered by their own views of wise public policy and judges who follow the law tempered by what they believe to be the public's views of wise policy. And I don't think the choice between them uh, is especially clear one way or the other. Certainly it's not a slam dunk for, for extremely independent judges. So where does this all take us? Inescapably, though with substantial qualifications that I mentioned, we return to the truth we knew long before today. Judicial elections trade independence for accountability, and appointive systems trade accountability for independence. But we need not strike the balance between accountability and independence the same way for all courts. The worst dangers presented by popular influence concern trial courts. At its worst, we can imagine a judge pressured to ignore the constitutional rights of an unpopular criminal defendant. Advocates of appointive systems rightly point to a concern at least as old as the Federalist Papers that the temporary popular will represents not enlightened opinion, but instead a faction. The worst dangers of appointive systems, by contrast, occur in the context of appellate courts. While trial court decisions are important, and while all judicial decisions to some extent make policy, Appellate court decisions are much more likely to impact the law beyond the parties involved. As a result, independent and insulated appellate courts present the democratic danger of having unrepresentative and unaccountable judges making policy opposed by most of the people. I'll conclude then by suggesting that you consider revising your current system, but in a way different from SJR 2. Using appointments on the federal model for trial judges and using elections for the state Supreme Court may represent the best possible compromise between the seemingly incompatible goals of independence and accountability. Thank That, uh, that occurs to me as I listen to, uh, to both of you. It, it seems to me that we have um, uh, sort of a spectrum between, between pure election, which seems to be where Nevada is now, the federal system, which appears to be sort of pure appointment, uh, and something in between this Missouri plan in which we have um, um, shifted some power from the people to a nominating commission um, uh, to a governor who has, who has some control with the, with the retention election. So there's, there's some, some elements of both appointment and uh, election in a, 
in a Missouri plan of the one that, uh, that Nevada is, is, uh, is considering. Um, so let me, let me just make sure that I, that I understand the position of, of each of you on this. Uh, is either of you uh, in favor of a purely elective system? And does the Missouri plan represent at least a better step than, uh, than, than the system that we have um, in, in your view, even if you might favor some, ultimately some different system? So let me start with that just to sort of figure out where you are. Steve? You can hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I certainly don't favor the elective system. I, uh, as I said, uh, Judge Bobby, I, I favor the uh, pure appointive system because it's produced people like you. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, let's not start that debate. <laughs> system over the Missouri plan option. I think the Missouri plan option, in attempting to create the best of both worlds, instead creates the worst. So I, I would prefer... Can we agree on that, if I understand things correctly? Yes, yes, I think, I think we do. Let, let, me, let me just make sure I've got it right now. That, is that, you, that both of you would prefer either one or the other, that is a purely elective system or a purely appointed system, and think that the Missouri system is sort of the worst of either of those worlds, or both of those worlds. Well, I, I would never prefer an elective system, but yes, the Missouri plan is the worst of both of those worlds. All those worlds. I, I agree with what you said before, that, that the Missouri plan is the third of the uh, of my preferred options. I would prefer either a pure appointed or a pure elective system to the Missouri plan. And I think their elections, both elections and the Missouri plan are equally despicable. <laughs> Well, don't leave us in doubt here. I mean, we, we don't, don't hedge any words with us. We can take it. Let, let, can I make a comment or two about that? Yeah, please, go ahead. What, what the, interesting dis- the real interesting disagreement between uh, Michael and me, and we, we talked about this, is that I have a romantic faith in the rule of law, and there is such a thing, and that we don't want judges to be policymakers, and Michael has a romantic faith in the ability of the people to select at least some judges. So both of us are living in a fantasy land, perhaps, <laughs> but, but I think that's where our positions get clearly delineated. And I think that even if, even if it's a good idea to have judges follow just the law, I think clearly that's not what's been happening. And the choice of a selection system, it seems to me, should look more to actual practice than to, than to what we would prefer judges to do. Now, uh, perhaps Professor Presser is arguing that an elective system makes it even more likely that judges will decide cases based on the wrong criteria. I don't think I agree with that. I, I, I don't suppose that it's, that it's possible to know for sure, but I know that the, the pure independent system uh, certainly creates the possibility of judges deciding cases based on their own personal whim, and I view that as, as at least as, as unfortunate a result as judges deciding cases based on what they think the public wants. Now, uh, uh, Professor Domino, if, if I heard uh, something that you said correctly, I think I think it was you that said it. Um, I think you quoted a study in which you said that the that the, um, that the the type the qualifications of people that were chosen under an elective system apparently turned out to be not different from the qualifications of people under the Missouri plan. Is that that's right. Okay. Now, was there a difference between those two systems, that is either a purely elected system or a Missouri plan, and those appointed under a purely uh, appointed plan? No. No. Uh, the, okay. The studies are somewhat old, and I didn't run them, but, but they, 
say not allowed. Doesn't, my doesn't that suggest then that, that it doesn't really matter which plan we get? We tend to get the same folks. Well, no, it is. It's not that there's a difference between who you get or what decisions are are produced, just on the qualifications of the judges selected. So elected judges tend to have worked in firms for some time or to have been district attorneys and to have graduated from uh, a well-regarded law school and, and these sorts of things. Uh, but the decisions that result may in fact be different, uh, particularly as regards criminal cases. Famous series of political science studies uh, have centered on, on death penalty cases and found that, that elected judges and judges who are approaching the end of their term seem particularly unlikely to stake out uh, positions in criminal cases opposed to what they think the popular will is. So it can make a difference in terms of the way cases are decided, though um, the extent of our knowledge about the empirics now uh, indicate that the qualifications don't differ much, if at all. Okay. Yeah? Just, just a quick comment on that. Um, the studies of both the 19th and 20th centuries actually did show, by and large, that you end up with the same kind of people, whatever system you have in place. And so it may all be much ado about nothing. But, but there is um, one interesting variation on that. And that is, uh, if you look at the states that still have a purely appointed with legislative uh, confirmation system, I think you generally end up with slightly better people. For example, Delaware uh, is one of those states that follows the old system. And the Delaware chancellors uh, have been officials who've been of almost uniformly high quality and very, very good for corporate law. So if Nevada really wants to imitate Delaware, they should move to that system as well, I think. If, there, if, if what we're discovering in the, in the studies, which, uh, which both of you suggest may be just a little bit old, um, that, the, that the type of people and the type of qualifications of jurists selected either under a purely elected system, a purely appointed system, or a compromised Missouri plan is not terribly different at the inception. Um, if we think that we're getting a different kind of justice out of those people who all tend to have the same qualifications, doesn't that suggest that there's something else at issue here which might be perhaps the length of the term for which they are selected. That is, would we, would we be just as well with an election, as long as it was an election for life, uh, as we would be with appointment for life? So does it suggest that the real problem here has to do with something different that is, that is continuing review that, that gives judges an incentive to want to hedge their bets in order to, to appeal to whoever's reappointing them? That makes sense. Uh, and I think Michael has uh, quoted statistics that say when, when you're looking at uh, retention of judges or when they come up for re-election, you do notice that their decisions begin to get skewed as they get closer and closer to that point. So that without that, uh, you might have a more consistent jurisprudence out of them. I agree. I, I think it's, uh, to the extent that we worry about elections, very few of us worry about the initial selection all that much. We worry about the prospect of re-election. And uh, for, for as much as I like the idea of some level of accountability, I can't, I, I can't see it as preferable overall to have judges looking over their shoulders all the time. So yes, I, I agree that, that lengthier terms, certainly longer than, than six years, um, perhaps approaching 14, that New York system is 14, that's, uh, that's on the long end, uh, perhaps that would, would strike a more appropriate balance without worrying about trying to conduct these the sham retention elections to give judges longer tenure while still maintaining some level uh, of, of uh, ability in voters to, to throw out judges who come to their attention, perhaps by, by the, the freakish happenstance of, 
uh, happening, happening to get a high-profile case that, that should be rightly decided on the law in a way inconsistent with what the public wants. Uh, again, so irrespective of the mode of appointment, um, how do you feel about limited terms for judges? And um, as you comment about length of terms, um, should there be an opportunity for reappointment? I like lifetime tenure period. Yeah, I, I think that that if you're going to reevaluate judges, I think it's appropriate to do it in a in a sense removed from the public one step. Perhaps a, a legislative uh, reevaluation of what uh, of a judge's record, uh, something perhaps short of impeachment. At least on the federal scale, impeachment has been so difficult that it's never been successful uh, for for a Supreme Court justice, and has been rarely used for lower court judges. Perhaps something a little less difficult on the state level. But I, I share the concern that, that it is uh, it is it is empowered not to be used all that all that often, and I wouldn't I wouldn't mind very much uh, good behavior appointments on the state system, whether initially chosen by popular election or by. Uh, and there's one other thing that, that should be said. Tried. I think there was a lot to be said for Roosevelt's court packing plan, <laughs> so that uh, when you end up with a superannuated bench, you just put a few more folks on it. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe there's a fourth idea. Or you you wanna, I, I, here we, I don't know if we can hear you. If you want to take the mic, we can make. Uh, here, take my mic. Maybe there's a fourth idea here that has Nevada has a judicial selection committee, a justice Supreme Court at the head, members appointed by Nevada bar, and lay people appointed by the sitting uh, governor. And I've been on that group. Uh, and it has a very thorough vetting process, and I, and I might say a very honest vetting process where the people at the table are really and truly interested, at least when I sit on, in appointing a, uh, names to the governor to appoint for judge positions. Uh, what, what would be wrong with having a judicial selection committee for interim elections, and for elections where they came up with two or three candidates. They ran for life, they'd run for uh, election and be, and be a lifetime appointment or appointment for a couple dozen years. If I make myself clear, I Well, you, you make yourself perfectly clear and, and there's, in the abstract, probably nothing wrong uh, with that sort of an idea uh, if it's lifetime appointments with the one problem being the capture problem that seems to affect so many Missouri plan jurisdictions where a small segment of the bar ends up controlling the commission. You know, if that doesn't happen, maybe it's not all that bad. Yeah, I haven't considered a, a proposal exactly like the one that you suggest either. I think there's, there's a lot to say on its behalf. It does overrepresent lawyers' interests as opposed to the interests of the public, which is something to be to be wary of, um, but but it uh, other than that danger and the danger of, of putting a lot of faith in this group that that is somewhat shadowy from the public's perspective, I, I think it's it's certainly one worth talking about. Shadowy in the sense not a, not of, 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 of being uh, 
necessarily a, a negative kind of thing, but people don't know who are on it. These aren't the most notorious people in the world, and, and I take it that the commission wouldn't be wouldn't be popularly selected themselves. So it's two steps removed from the public instead of uh, either a direct or, or a, a one-step removed process. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open up the floor for questions. Uh, Professor Sandelhan is over at the mic. If you're on that side of the room, you're welcome to go to the mic. Uh, if you want me to play Phil Donahue, I'll, I'll uh, wander around over here and, and uh, hand you a mic. So, uh, Tuan? Sure. Um, I've, I've uh, been concerned with uh, what we see sort of on the ground. I agree with in abstract with the principles articulated, but, but on the ground, things look pretty bad in the courts and data. Uh, I've heard practitioners both from the defense and the plaintiffs bar express uh, their sentiments that they would be policed and shaken down by judges when they have to uh, pay campaign finance contributions uh, to a judge that is hearing a matter that's pending for them. Uh, but at the same time, SGR 2 is a proposal that's been shot down before uh, that is a Missouri-type plan. And so, again, putting aside sort of normatively what one might wish to have, uh, such as a pure appointment system, which again, I think has particular trouble in Nevada, where we don't have a permanent legislature, a biennial legislature, so to get the advice and consent of the Senate doesn't work so well. And what can we do if this amendment doesn't pass to improve our system? Is it just increased political prosecution in terms of campaigning? I know Mike, especially as an election lawyer, uh, what can we do to fix the system? Well, I, I, I share your concern. I think it's, it's absolutely terrible that that, uh, that lawyers can be pressured in that way, if not overtly, uh, then, then something a little more subtle. Uh, I, I think it's a, a deplorable result. The solution to that, though, may not be scrapping the electoral system, but may be in, in adopting more restrictions on the way those campaigns are conducted, particularly the public financing scheme. Yeah, People tend not to not to react viscerally in favor of a scheme that, that requires a public outlay of funds to, to support elections. Nevertheless, in the context of the judiciary, I, I think it's it's particularly uh, has, has has special uh, weight and, and merit because of the risk of of judges and and individuals trying to to uh, shake down the contributions from people who will have interests representing the court ahead of time. So I, I favor taking a look at the public financing scheme. One, one policy that has been offered is, is a, a, uh, a mandatory recusal system, whereas if, if a case comes before a judge and one of the parties or one of the lawyers has contributed to that judge's campaign, the judge will be recused from that case. I think Missouri has, has adopted a mandatory recusal rule like this, and while the intention there is good, I think you all can see how the potential for gaming that system, that if I'm going to, uh, if I represent a certain industry, I'm going to contribute a nominal sum to the campaign of the judge who least supports my industry's interests, so that whenever I bring a case if it's assigned to that judge, that judge will be removed from the case. Accepting the public money or accepting private money when it's going to be much more difficult to raise a comparable sum 
by uh, by getting contributions from from uh, private individuals. Just a brief comment to, to Tuan. Um, I, I'm not completely sure that changing the judicial selection process is going to do much about the problem that you mentioned, though I think eliminating judicial uh, elections would help. But it strikes me that, that some of the practices that are talked about in that incredibly eye-opening set of pieces in the Los Angeles Times, things like appointing your friends as receivers and doing favors for your old law firms and things like that, uh, probably already violate your canon of judicial ethics, if not federal law. Uh, and it strikes me that uh, prosecutions and stricter enforcement of canons might be what's called for. Question over here. Yeah, hi, I'm Julie Alexander. I'm the executive director of Redress Incorporated. We're a nonprofit organization that advocates for victims of legal abuse. We testified yesterday in the work session of the Senate Committee on the Judiciary against SJR2, and apparently I just found out that there's an article in the paper that quoted us saying our position against SJR2. We feel strongly that the real problems that are going on in the legal system with the attorneys and the judges. Uh, we've put the cart before the horse. We need to focus on judicial discipline because these are the issues that have caused the public to lose any belief in the integrity of the system. We have a closed complaint system. We have a system where if we file a complaint against a judge and we talk about it, 25 days in jail, $500 fine. We have multiple sealed cases where incredible misconduct goes on in a sealed case and you can't do anything about it. Um, we think that SJR2 or any judicial selection process is backwards. What we need to do is we need to, as I think it was Justice Breyer said, that sunlight is the best disinfectant. We need to open up the complaint system for attorneys and judges. We need to let the public see this. In New Jersey, they passed a uh, county ordinance that any attorney that wants to run for a judicial position has to voluntarily open their uh, complaint records. The way that we see it from the public eye is that we have an attorney that's in so much trouble with the state bar that they're about to get their butts whooped. <laughs> and so they can run for judicial election. If they win that election, now they're out from under the state bar, they're under the Judicial Discipline Commission. The Judicial Discipline Commissions are a failure nationwide. We know on the federal level where there are lifetime appointments, we know that 999 out of 1,000 complaints are dismissed without investigation. We ourselves, and myself as a court watcher, caught federal judge Lloyd George tape tampering. We submitted the complaint and the evidence to the Ninth Circuit Court. When all was said and done, first they tried to poo-poo us and have us just go away. We didn't do that. We appealed the complaint. Then they came back with a document that we have and we're releasing as evidence saying yes, that Lloyd George did in fact submit a second copy of a tape upon questioning. Now he's still over there. I would have gone to Leavenworth for five to seven years for tape tampering or witness tampering. These kinds of things are the real problem and they need to be addressed before we look at any judicial selection. As citizens, as advocates for legal reform, our position is we really don't care how those judges get there, but we sure do care about what they do when they get there. Now, we support some decisions that other people would think are popular. For example, Judge Gerald Hardcastle had the case about uh, the, the Bergeron case. Um, most people would be familiar with the Bergeron case, and he came up with what the public thought was an extremely unpopular decision. He would not terminate the parental rights of the parents that left these children alone and allowed them to want to die and want to become wheelchair bound for the rest of their life uh, because of you know their negligence. But the bottom line is, in our organization, we totally supported Gerald Hardcastle. We felt that he abided by the family law manual. He did the right thing. Your right to be a parent. I mean, a civil death penalty to terminate parental rights 
we're not saying that all judges are bad. We don't say that all judges are bad. We don't say that all attorneys are bad. What we're saying is there's very little accountability. And if we want to make any progress in any way in the state of Nevada, that's what we need to look at first is judicial discipline and attorney discipline. Well, I'm not sure which, you know, the order in which to address these sorts of concerns, but I do agree with you that the, that discussion on the motive of appointment or election doesn't seem to be addressing that concern. It, it's, it's, when we talk about issues of merit selection, what gets swept under the rug is that the merit that most of us are concerned about are these judges deciding cases the right way is not the kind of merit that's addressed by the selection system at all. Not, I'm not sure that it's that it's possible to to uh, create a system that does take those matters of did this judge decide this case correctly into account. Uh, but but I agree that that uh, that this sort of, uh, of discussion doesn't impact that question much. Very good comment. I mean, I agree with most of the things that you said, and that was the point that I was trying to make uh, with Tuan. One minor, extremely pedantic point. I think Sunshine is the best disinfectant as Brandeis rather than Justice Breyer. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Thank you, Judge. Um, I had a question, and I want to say I found this very interesting and a lot of new ideas here. I appreciate everybody's comments. Uh, I'm trying to wrestle with this issue a little bit, though. You know, uh, South Carolina the Board of Governors and State Bar. And, uh, maybe I just quickly say we do try our best to uh, balance all the issues of disciplining our attorneys. And there is a lot of information available, and we have to shout you out on attorney discipline. But um, where we got here today, uh, the same quality um, lawyer or judge appears to gain the bench through each system. And I'd like to uh, address the advocate for elections. What about the cost of elections in the perception that money is juice, not justice? That's the cost of an election. And what about the cost of negative campaigning, which uh, we have suffered in a number of high-profile races over the years here? If, if we get the same quality judge through all the different processes, why should we take on those costs which hurt the perception of our judiciary in the eyes of the public? All right, let's take that one first. Well, as, as to the as to the interest, the, the cost of elections in terms of of money's influence, I think that's a substantial cost, but I don't think it's limited to elections. I think that when we look at the interest group uh, power over legislative bodies, we can just as easily claim that money is influencing legislators both to confirm or vote down a potential nominee, that the interest group campaigns, and it, and it has become a, a public campaign, at least in the federal system, taking lots of money. Perhaps you can say that the judges who get through that process and are confirmed on the strength of interest group influence end up being beholden to those interests. And there's also the risk, in terms of public uh, prestige, for the courts, uh, that any other system will raise similar, different but but similarly important interests. The what is the effect of a system that looks so country clubbish 
that where the, the eventual nominees are known to be friends of the appointing authority. Isn't that a substantial threat to the prestige of this system? That, that sort of threat can be solved in some ways by elections. Very little to add to that, but um, there is one more cost of judicial elections. It's probably uh, hard to quantify, but, but the theory behind judicial elections currently is, we talk about this, judges uh, are essentially lawmakers and, and policy formulators uh, like legislatures, and that, I think, imposes a profound cost uh, as diminishing the importance of the rule of law itself, and that's, I think, the ultimate reason why I don't like elections. Even if that's true, even if there is a cost in admitting that judges are policymakers, I think that is outweighed by the costs of trying to shift judicial policymaking under the rug. That admitting it and saying we're going to take measures that are going to to address this problem uh, is is a better way to go, in my view, than to to say we're going to create a system that ignores the possibility of judicial policy making uh, or judicial policy making based on their own views of good policy. Unless, of course, we can eliminate judicial policy making by impeachment or other means. Yeah, it's all for that. Additional questions? All right, well, we've gone for a little over an hour. Let's, uh, let's thank our panelists. The, again, thank the Federalist Society uh, for hosting the luncheon under such uh, nice circumstances. Uh, Matt, I'll, I'll turn the mic back to you. Thank you very much, Judge. I uh, just wanted to announce that the, the third and final installment of the debate series will be held on May 4th at the Golden Nugget. And it's going to uh, have as one of the uh, guests, one of the journalists from the Los Angeles Times who wrote the Juice versus Justice series of articles, which has sort of been the uh, the galvanizing force of a lot of everything that we're dealing with and talking about now. Uh, we'll be in attendance and the, top, the, the topic will be, okay, when we have situations where we've identified judicial co conduct that is not good, what do we do about it? And what are the roles and responsibilities of the media, lawyers, professional responsibility, the criminal system? Uh, so these are the things that will be discussed in the next uh, lunch and I hope you can make it. Thank you for coming. <laughs>